0: You know that people love to build monuments to themselves, right? We, we do this kind of thing all the time. Uh, we build monuments to ourselves, and, and maybe it's because we, we want to be remembered after we die. That, that's a big thing uh, in life, to, to, to not perish and, and have nobody remember us. Uh, and so we, we often build monuments after uh, we die, or, or before we die, so that we'll be remembered after we die. Uh, the oldest known life-size statue of a man ever created, uh, that's been found anyway, uh, is this statue that was found in Southeast Turkey. This is called Urfa Man. Uh, It stands five foot, 11 inches tall. So it's a life-size replica of somebody. The art is, you know, it or leave it, I guess, but, but it's really old and, and that's the thing about it. Uh, 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 supposedly uh, this dates to 9000 BC, uh, depending on your view of things. Uh, you might agree or disagree with that, but 9000 BC is when this uh, statue was supposedly created. Uh, this statue of Akhenaten, also known as Amenhotep IV, uh, a, a pharaoh of Egypt, Uh, was built about 1340 BC, and actually stands 41 feet high. You can't tell from that picture, but that's how tall the thing stands. Uh, Ramesses II, a pharaoh of Egypt, was a a prolific builder, uh, and he built this uh, temple called the Abu Simbel Temple to himself in the 13th century BC, uh, and the four seated statues there, They're all Ramses, there's no room for anybody else. Uh, All four are him. If you look real closely at his feet between his legs, you can see little miniature statues and those represent his children and even his wife, Nefertiri, is represented among those. But just to establish his greatness as opposed to those of his wife and his children, uh, those are the kinds of statues that he created. And then of course, there are the great pyramids, right? Uh, These great pyramids of Egypt, monuments to the pharaohs uh, who would be buried there. Uh, the largest of the Great Pyramids, the Great Pyramid of Giza, was built by Pharaoh Khufu in about 2500 BC. And that thing is 450, uh, four, uh, 455 feet tall, that, the greatest of the pyramids. So the ancients, they built these monuments to themselves to display their power and their wealth and to be remembered after they were gone. Uh, the Great Pyramid, for example, took over 25 years to build. Uh, and it took about 2.3 million stones, and uh, some of those stones weighed up to two and a half tons, which is 5,000 pounds, 5,000 pound stones. So today's engineers are, are still marveling at how uh, these ancient Egyptians uh, built these pyramids. Uh, even with modern equipment uh, and, and with uh, today's engineering tactics, uh, the precision with which these pyramids were built and, and the task of moving the stones is still would be hard to replicate even using today's most modern instruments. So uh, they're a testament to, to how these uh, pharaohs wanted to be remembered. But they also tell us something more uh, about them. They wanted to be revered as well, right? As long as, uh, as well as being remembered, because even the pharaohs knew that, that they were mortal, right? They, they all knew that they were going to die, and so they were trying to transcend time uh, in some way and to leave a legacy so that they would never be forgotten. Now, I don't know how well that worked out for them, because in the case of the Great Pyramid, uh, I didn't know who built it uh, until I actually did some research and learned that Pharaoh Khufu uh, built this pyramid. So it seems like over the centuries, uh, it's the Great Pyramid itself that gets the glory more than the Pharaoh uh, who built it, uh, much to his dismay. Uh, But that's true of all of us, right? Like as long as, as as much as, as we'd like to avoid it, As much as even the pharaohs wanted to avoid it, uh, time forgets almost everyone who has ever lived. So uh, building monuments uh, to self is really just vanity, as Solomon called it in Ecclesiastes, a, a chasing after the wind. But Nebuchadnezzar found himself in the same situation. He wasn't any different than these pharaohs and kings who had gone before him. He was the world's first true ruler, the ruler of a whole empire, And when we left off last week at the end of Daniel chapter 2, he had just uh, given Nebuchadnezzar his dream and interpreted the dream for him. And Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar that the the statue uh, represented him, uh, his kingdom. The head of gold represented the Babylonian kingdom. And then after his kingdom, three more kingdoms would come in succession, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but all would be inferior to his kingdom. Now... Nebuchadnezzar, in response to this dream, uh, could have two potential responses, I suppose. The first might be uh, to wonder how uh, his uh, uh, kingdom, his empire, could ever be toppled, that there would be empires that succeeded his. He might have spent time worrying about that or trying to figure out how to prevent that. Uh, The other potential response was, let's build a 90-foot gold statue uh, to commemorate me and my kingdom. Uh, And that is the way that Nebuchadnezzar went. Uh, So for us, you know, as monotheistic Christians who believe in one God, it's very hard for us to understand and wrap our minds around the polytheistic uh, mindset. Uh, You know, Nebuchadnezzar was willing to recognize Daniel's God, but he was only willing to put him in uh, among the other gods of the uh, pagan pantheon. And we might have expected that after Daniel had revealed not only the dream but the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar that that maybe he would have given God, uh, Daniel's God, a higher status. And and maybe he did as opposed to some of the other gods, but uh, he was not willing to receive Daniel's God as the exclusive God. Uh, He was willing to revere God, but only among the other gods. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar had the audacity to think, well, surely there's room for me and my image among this pantheon of gods as well. And so he erects this giant 90-foot statue. Uh, Like most world rulers, Nebuchadnezzar had a humongous ego, of course, right? Uh, He was the king of the whole world. And so why not represent it in this statue? So the story that we're about to, to look at today... Uh, Really, it's about worshiping God no matter the circumstances, right? Uh, These three friends of Daniel find themselves in an impossible situation, uh, but they leave the consequences of uh, of, of, of their decision to worship God to God, and they just continue not to engage in idolatry and continue to worship the Lord. So Daniel's three friends had remarkable faith in God. And they were prepared for persecution. And so the question for us today is, are we prepared for persecution? Uh, Because we will face persecution as we continue to follow the Lord in a world that is increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. So let's first look at the image of gold. This is verses 1 through 7. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits Uh, and it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providence uh, to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, and the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you command is given, O peoples, nations of men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at the time when all the peoples heard the music of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So uh, under penalty of death, uh, they bow down to this thing. Now, scholars debate when exactly this happened in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It's interesting, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, uh, adds into verse 1 in the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, That would be the year 587 BC, some 16 years after uh, Daniel uh, interpreted the dream. So no one knows why these Greek scholars uh, inserted that in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign into uh, verse 1. Uh, When we think about it, in 587 BC, if you remember your your chronology, uh, that was the third time that Nebuchadnezzar went to the Holy Land. And when he was there, that was the time he destroyed the temple and brought all the rest of the uh, Israelite uh, uh, exiles back to Babylon. So it seems unlikely to me that he would have been in Babylon erecting the statue because he was in Israel, uh, I think, uh, bringing all the exiles back and burning down Jerusalem. So uh, I prefer uh, the, the interpretation that this happened much closer in time uh, to the time of his dream and Daniel's interpretation of it, which would have been closer to around 602 B.C. Uh, But whenever it was, since Nebuchadnezzar said, I am the head of gold, uh, why not make a great golden image testifying to his greatness? So uh, that's what he did. And he probably did it uh, to increase his fame, to increase his notoriety, but also to instill fear uh, and awe and reverence in his subjects uh, and to try and unite them uh, in worship and allegiance to him. And so uh, this statue Uh, is, is, uh, if you work out the distance, a cubit is about a foot and a half. So this thing is 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. Now, that is grossly out of proportion for representation of a human body, right? It would be way, way too tall and way too thin. Uh, And that's why many think that it was a statue that was on a very tall base, perhaps like this. Maybe uh, half of the statue was base and half was body. Uh, But we don't know. That's just a guess. But the whole thing was overlaid with gold. Uh, and there was a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus who visited uh, the plain of Dura and saw this, and he, w- he wrote down his findings. And he said uh, that never in his life had he seen so much gold or even imagined that there could possibly be so much gold in the world that this statue could be created. So it must have been quite a spectacular sight. And uh, it says, Nebuchadnezzar built this statue in the plain of Dura. Uh, We don't know exactly where that is. We know that the word dura means inside enclosed walls. Uh, So somewhere in the Babylonian kingdom, inside closed walls more than likely, there was a plain, and that is where he erected this statue. Uh, Many scholars think it was 16 miles southeast of Babylon. I don't know why he would have chosen such a location, but uh, that's what they believe is where he uh, put this statue up. Uh, So Nebuchadnezzar demands that all the administrators bow down to this statue whenever the music is played. Now, we play music in our worship services, right? We love music. We love to worship the Lord through music, and and music can be a very helpful way to worship God, and that's why we sing the songs uh, that we sing. But forced worship, being forced to bow down at the sound of music, isn't true worship, right? He demanded that of his community. Uh, He forced them to do it, even if they were unwilling. And Nebuchadnezzar had quite a cabinet full of officials, right, the satraps, uh, these were the highest political officers in each particular province. Uh, The prefects were military chiefs. Uh, The governors were heads of sections of the provinces. Uh, The the counselors were high-ranking judges. The treasurers had uh, control over the money. Uh, The judges were kind of mid-level judges and the magistrates were the lowest level judges. Uh, The rulers were subordinate to the satraps who seemed to be the highest office uh, in the land. Uh, But these all represented the various levels of the bureaucracy of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's government. Just like we have levels of government in the US, he had it in his uh, government too. So there are hundreds, if not thousands of them, and according to verse 4 and verse 7, they all spoke many different languages. So this statue would unify them, unite them, even though they spoke different languages, it would unite them under uh, Nebuchadnezzar's authority and under uh, under his kingdom. So face, uh, when you hear the music, bow down. If you refuse to bow down and worship the statue when the music played, well, you are immediately going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and burned alive. Now, these furnaces weren't necessarily built for this occasion. Uh, The Babylonians used these fiery furnaces to smelt metals. That was one of the things they did. Uh, So uh, these furnaces, it might have looked something like this. Uh, they, They made bricks and made furnaces from the bricks. It would have an opening at the top and it would have an opening at the side. And so you would put stuff in at the top and then you would pull stuff out from the side. And so the furnace may have been built on the side of a small hill, like you can see uh, that this one is, uh, and it allows the soldiers to walk up the back of the hill and drop things through the top, uh, and then be able to pull them out from the side. And so, also, in for, uh, conveniently for Nebuchadnezzar, he would be able to look into this furnace and see what he saw, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, but they say that these furnaces could get as hot as 1,800 degrees in there if they turned up the fire hot enough. And that would sure be enough to inspire fear, right? You would burn to ash in a second uh, in that kind of fire. Uh, And so that's what the Chaldeans had in mind for these three young boys. So let's look at the Chaldeans' uh, accusation of the three. This is verses 8 to 12. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Uh, So they laid a trap, and then they thought that they could spring the trap on these three uh, young boys. The first thing we notice, of course, is that Daniel is not with them, right? It's just the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So where is Daniel? Uh, Most likely, the answer uh, comes from uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 49. It says, At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So we can imagine that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the plain of Dura doing whatever their administrative duties are, while Daniel is either in the palace or he's away on official business. Uh, But the Chaldeans, Uh, These are astrologers, these are the wise men in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's administration. And we can imagine that they were resentful of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They had just been promoted. Uh, They had received uh, these promotions at the request of Daniel and raised higher in the uh, Babylonian government uh, than many of these officials were. And so they were looking for a chance to take these guys down, right? They they were Jews and they were outsiders and and they didn't want them up above them in this cabinet. And so they're looking for an opportunity. And so here's the accusation they make against them. Uh, They have no regard for the king. Uh, they do not serve the king's gods, and they do not worship the golden image. And so these charges amounted to treason against these three guys, because Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, you're going in the furnace if you won't do that. That's a rebellion against me. And so let's look at their refusal to worship the image, verses 13 to 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king." But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up." So Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance to obey. Despite the reports from uh, these Chaldeans who uh, reported that they would not bow down, Nebuchadnezzar wants to see it for himself. And then Nebuchadnezzar asks this question that shows his great pride and arrogance. What God is there? was able to deliver you from my hands. Well, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't claim innocence of Daniel's, or, or ignorance of Daniel's God, right? He had just uh, seen, uh, listened to Daniel uh, give the dream and the interpretation, uh, but still Nebuchadnezzar is unchanged. He thought that maybe he could speak to Daniel in dreams, but surely he was not powerful enough to recognize and, and, and rescue these three from his wrath and from the fiery furnace. And so Nebuchadnezzar still has quite a bit to learn about Daniel's God. You know, big picture here, uh, Daniel chapter three is known as the fiery furnace chapter, uh, and and that's how we refer to it. And it really focuses on the faith of these three young men, as it should, and we don't wanna lose that. But I also don't want us to miss that in chapters two through four of Daniel, God is working on Nebuchadnezzar as well, isn't he? Uh, in Daniel 2, uh, God or, or Daniel introduces Nebuchadnezzar to his God by giving the dream and giving the interpretation. And here in Daniel 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn even more about the power of Daniel's God. And in, in chapter 4, God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar until he recognized who God was and he humbled himself before God. Uh, And so God is is, is doing a work in progress on Nebuchadnezzar. In in the middle, this middle chapter of Nebuchadnezzar's story, uh, God is showing Nebuchadnezzar more about who he is uh, and giving him the chance to respond properly. Uh, What an incredible God of grace, right? To take this wicked pagan king and give him opportunity after opportunity uh, to know him and to respond properly to him. And he gives that same opportunity to you and I, and, and we have responded to that call. But he gives that opportunity to our friends and family neighbors and co-workers, people like that who have not yet received the Lord as well. And so we we continue to pray for those people who have not yet responded properly to God, that they will have a a moment like Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 4 and and look up and respond to the Lord uh, in the way that he wants to be acknowledged. Well, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't quite ready yet, uh, but we'll see in chapter 4 that God's power is irresistible uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And now the response of the friends. The response of the friends is, is simply amazing, isn't it? What can we say about it? They had no doubt that God could rescue them from this fire if he wanted to. And he, they had confidence that he would. They said, he will deliver us from this fire. They said, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us, O king. But they also acknowledged that it might not necessarily be God's will uh, that he saved them from this fire, right? So, so you and I have no problem, I don't think, uh, recognizing God's ability, right? God can do whatever He wants, but it, sometimes it's in the "Is it God's will?" where we really struggle, right? Sometimes God allows us to go through things we might not like to go through when we know God has the ability to rescue us from them. So we have to ask why, and the reason is. Uh, that God has something for us in the midst of that trial. And that's why they said, uh, even if he does not, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not bow down uh, to your statue and we will not worship your gods. Uh, And so we're just not going to worship this image that you have set up. Now, in our day, there are many golden images that have been set up that that we look at every day, right? Uh, And we're encouraged to bow down to. Uh, money, uh, for one, status, prestige, uh, right, uh, material possessions, uh, fame, attention, uh, sexual gratification, uh, praise of men. All these things are things that, that we are supposed to worship and idolize. But we, as uh, children of the Lord, uh, have to reject the world's, uh, what the world offers and the world's gods and worship the one true God only, as these three did. And can you imagine the faith that it must have taken for these three to say that to Nebuchadnezzar's face, right? The most powerful man in the world. Uh, And and probably they are looking right at the fiery furnace that is burning hot. uh, And they know that that is their destiny. Uh, So it's like Paul said, I think, in Philippians when he said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For these three men, uh, they didn't care. You can throw me in the fire if you want. But for me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. I will not bow down to your gods no matter what you say. Uh, and when fear of death is not going to work, uh, well, you have no power over somebody anymore. And for you and I as Christians, uh, if we don't fear death, uh, what can anybody do to us? If we worship the Lord and they come and they kill us, well, so what? In a split second, we are with the Lord. So uh, we need to have the kind of faith that they did. Uh, these guys knew that God could save them. Uh, and they th- hoped that it was his will that they would, but they would rather die than worship their gods, uh, his gods. Job said in uh, chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, uh, yet I will hope in him, right? And, and, and that is the kind of faith that we want to have. And, and these guys, Job and, the, and Daniel's three friends, they lived before Jesus and his resurrection. And the challenge for us is to have this same kind of faith, uh, no matter what the outcome is. You know, God won't always save us from suffering, right? You all know that from your own lives. God does not save us from suffering. And he may not even save some of us from death. But he has promised to be with us and to save our souls for all eternity So uh, you and I have much to learn from missionaries in foreign lands who wake up every day uh, not in the comfort that that we enjoy in the United States. They're under the threat of death every single day. They're willing to die for their faith. And I'm inspired by martyrs like Stephen, right, in Acts chapter 7, Polycarp, Bishop uh, Bishop of Smyrna, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, all, the, all the millions of Christian martyrs there have been uh, who uh, had faith that I call even if he doesn't faith, right? This is even if he doesn't faith, yet we will still uh, trust in the Lord. And that's the kind of faith that I want to have, and I pray that that's the kind of faith you want to have as well. Well, they had laid down the gauntlet. They had, they had defied Nebuchadnezzar, and so they're going to go into the furnace, verses 19 Through twenty-three, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the furnace of blazing fire." And for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, uh, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. So Nebuchadnezzar reacts with rage, his his facial expression turned toward them. You can imagine his face, you know, turning into a snarl and uh, being extremely hostile toward them. Uh, How dare these ungrateful kids, these young Jews who I just promoted in my empire, defy me like this. I will show them my power. Turn up the furnace as high as it will go and we'll cast them in and we'll see what God can deliver them from my power. And so he orders the warriors to tie them up and throw them in. And the furnace was so hot that the warriors couldn't escape the heat. They died uh, casting these guys in. And the fact that they were fully clothed is going to figure in a minute in this story. Let's talk about the deliverance, verses 24 through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the most high God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, you can imagine, pulled up his chair to get a front row seat to this thing. He sat as close as he dared uh, to watch these three boys incinerate uh, in the fire. And he would take his revenge on these these three young boys who refused to bow down to him. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar sat perplexed as he watched. Uh, And he confirmed with his officials, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? Uh, Yeah, king, we did. We threw three guys in there. Well, how is it that I see four guys walking around in there, and one of them looks like a son of the gods? Well, scholars debate the meaning of this phrase, son of the gods, right? Uh, If you were to ask a Jewish scholar, they would most likely say that this fourth man uh, was an angel protecting this person from the fire. Uh, But the term son of the gods implies deity, right? If you were the son of deity, you are, in fact, yourself deity. Uh, So for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, uh, he was was a pagan. He had no concept of the Christian trinity. uh, But at least he recognized that this fourth person uh, was uh, of God, uh, a deity in himself. Now, a Christian scholar, uh, most Christian scholars generally agree that this fourth person walking around in the fire is a pre-incarnate, vision of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He appears frequently uh, in the Old Testament and often he's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Uh, The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16 uh, when she was uh, dying in the desert, starving and thirsty, as was her son Ishmael. Uh, He appeared to uh, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 uh, as he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, most likely, it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who wrestled with Jacob at Peniel in uh, Genesis chapter 32. He appeared to Balaam as, uh, as the, the angel of the Lord riding on a donkey in Numbers chapter 22. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and in many other places in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, when we read the angel of the Lord, most often that refers to uh, a pre-incarnate, before Jesus was born, that means vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was him who joined the three friends in this fire and protected them from it. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to stomp around in a a fire of such intense heat like that and be unharmed by it? That must be amazing, right? Uh, We know the devastating effects of fire and how consuming it can be. And so you'd have to either be God or you would have to have God's protection in order to survive such a thing. Now, metaphorically speaking, of course, Jesus walks with us in our fiery trials every day. The Lord is with us in the trials that we face. And I'm sure that you all have a testimony of times in your lives that you went through something and you don't know how you survived it. And the only way you've survived it, the only way I've survived it, is because the Lord walked with us in those times and helped us through those fiery trials. So whether you've experienced cancer or some other disease, divorce, financial ruin, death of a spouse, death of a child, uh, whatever it might be. uh, God, Jesus Christ, walked with you through that trial, and that's why we're still here today. And none of us would choose to walk through those trials again, but somehow God in his sovereignty and his grace uses these tragedies to make us more like Christ. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was flabbergasted as he's watching these four walk through the flames and he called them sons of the most high God and he summoned them from the flames. And I think this represents another step in in Nebuchadnezzar's progression toward uh, understanding who Daniel's God is. Earlier, he had said, what God is there arrogantly, right? What God is there who is able to save you, deliver you from my hands? And now he learns that there is a God who is able to deliver him them from his hands, uh, who could rescue them and who did rescue them. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar must have been quite astounded. So he orders them out of the fire and this time they obey him. Uh, so notice that they obeyed him when it didn't violate one of God's commands, right? There's no command of God that says, uh, stay in the fire, don't come out of the fire. Uh, so they came out of the fire when he commanded them to. And it's a lesson for us. God establishes governments. He tells us to obey the government unless it contradicts something that God commands. And so that's why uh, these three would not bow down to the statue, but they would come out of the fire. Now, our family, one of the things that we like to do is on a nice night in the fall or in the spring, we like to make a fire on our back patio uh, and and, and make a fire in our fire pit and roast marshmallows and listen to music and just hang out and be together. Uh, But the only downside to that, of course, is that you're completely covered in smoke and ash when the thing is over, right? You You have to wash your clothes and you have to scrub yourself from head to toe because the smoke seeps into your pores, right? We all know that from our own experience. But for these guys, there wasn't even the smell of fire not even on their clothes so they walked through this fire completely unscathed as though it were not even there they were completely unaffected by it and so when Nebuchadnezzar saw this he started to come around and start to realize uh, the power of Daniel's God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's transformation was not complete Uh, we'll see a little bit more of his progression next week but for now Nebuchadnezzar blessed the one true God in verses 28 to 30. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. What a turnaround, right? So this egomaniac, Nebuchadnezzar, who had just built a 90-foot statue to himself, had just witnessed a miracle. And now he's overwhelmed and he's effusive in his praise for God. His rage against these three youths turned to admiration that they would be willing to defy the king. Such was the strength of their principles that they would defy the king, face death, to obey their own God. And I also imagine that Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit afraid after this, right? Because uh, who has the power? What God can deliver you from my hands? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has just crossed this God who has the power to deliver them from his hands. And so he's quick uh, to uh, come up with a decree that might satisfy uh, this God of Daniel, uh, that anybody who who says any bad thing about this God uh, shall be torn limb from limb and his his house uh, reduced to rubble, which is the same punishment we saw uh, in chapter two. That seems to be a go-to punishment punishment for for Nebuchadnezzar uh, torn limb from limb and houses turned to rubble Uh, but the reason that God commanded this is because he acknowledges that there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way and so Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get a sense of who God is and these words that he said truer words were never spoken there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way The greatest deliverer the world has ever known, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He became a helpless baby. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a gruesome death on the cross and took the wrath that you and I deserve for the penalty of our sins so that we could know him and so that we could avoid the eternal fiery furnace of hell and enjoy eternity in heaven with him. Our sin is great, but his love, his grace is greater still. And then finally, we see that Nebuchadnezzar caused these three men to prosper. We don't know exactly what that means or how, but probably it involved material blessings and respect uh, from uh, these same satraps who tried to have them thrown into the furnace. So God continued to bless their lives as they obeyed and honored God and trusted him with the outcomes of their dire circumstances. Uh, What an incredible chapter in the book of Daniel. Let's close with a few applications. First one is this. Our faith increases as we trust God. And so God wants us to trust him. So that's the first application. Trust God and our faith will increase as we do. Uh, Sometimes when we face circumstances that that we think are impossible, uh, this is when God delivers us. And every time he does, each time he delivers us from one of those impossible dilemmas, our faith grows and we're more likely to trust him next time because of what he did last time, right? And the best predictor of future performance is past performance. And as God continues to show himself and his power and his love for us, the greater we will trust him next time. So when we're in tribulation, we know from Romans that tribulation produces perseverance, which builds character, which produces this certain hope that God can deliver us and will deliver us next time. So our faith increases as we trust God. Also, uh, others' faith increases as they watch us trust God. You know, our faith in suffering and trials is always a witness to others, as it was for Daniel's three friends here. And this has been throughout throughout, uh, church history. Uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You've heard that one before. Uh, whether God rescues us or not, when others see how we endure suffering, uh, how we walk with faith in our suffering, uh, trusting Him, their faith increases as well. Uh, and when we're able to testify about how God has delivered us, that is a powerful message for somebody who witnesses. Now, one of the reasons that I wrote my first book, the first book that I wrote, and, and, and uh, the beginning chapter about the anxiety and the depression that I went through, uh, that I honestly thought it was going to kill me. I did not think I was gonna survive that. The reason I wrote that was was to give other people who are going through that or who may go through that in their future uh, some kind of hope because there's nothing like a true story of hope and deliverance to encourage others in their faith. So uh, you and I need to tell our stories. Uh, this is how other people become encouraged and their faith will increase. So in Daniel three, the faith of these young men, uh, uh, that was remarkable faith it moved Nebuchadnezzar a little bit closer to understanding who God is and and we can only imagine how many other witnesses there were on the plain of Dura that day who saw what happened it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar there were all the whole government was there bowing down to the music but not these three they witnessed what happened and so you can imagine how they must have been changed that day third be careful who you worship God made us to worship him only Uh, and we're often Guilty of building monuments to ourselves, not 90-foot gold statues, right? But worshiping ourselves, seeking the praise of men, serving our needs, our comfort, our safety, pleasures, sometimes even serving sin. Jesus said, don't seek after these things, but seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So don't build monuments to self. Store up for yourself in heaven treasures that will not rust, where moth cannot destroy and where thieves do not steal. So how do we do it? Well, sharing our faith with others, giving sacrificially to Christian causes, living godly lives that, that, that show that we are children of God are some examples. Uh, when God is our number one priority, material goods and comfort become less important. Uh, only God is worthy of worship, and we have to be careful that he is on the throne and not us, so be careful who we worship. And last, uh, Jesus walks with us through our fiery trials. I will never leave you or forsake you, is one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible. So no matter what we encounter in life, we will never meet it alone. God is always with us. That doesn't mean he will always rescue us, but he will always walk through, us, uh, through our trial with us. And so when the three friends said, we know that God is able and we believe that he will, but even if he does not, that is a testimony for us too. We don't know why God will sometimes rescue us from one trial, uh, but other times he doesn't. Or why he rescues us from something, but he doesn't rescue somebody else going through something similar. We don't know why, uh, but we trust God that that he is with us through these things and that our faith will be strengthened uh, as, as we have this even if he does not kind of faith. Even if he does not, we are going to trust him. And now you and I, uh, we may be tempted when we're in the midst of a trial and God doesn't seem to answer uh, and God doesn't deliver us immediately. We We may be tempted to become angry with God and to abandon him just because he didn't save us from this one particular trial that we're going through. Brothers and sisters, how dare we, right? Uh, Jesus Christ was in heaven perfectly happy with God the Father and decided to take on a human body, become a man, uh, live a perfect life, die at the hands of sinners, the most excruciating death imaginable, to save us from the penalty of our sins so that we could live forever in heaven with him. And so if Jesus loved us that much, if he died for us, surely we can trust that he's got a plan for us in the suffering and the trials that we have to overcome. So even when he doesn't rescue us, we just have to predetermine that we are going to have faith even in our trials. Uh, Jesus is with us just as he was with these three men in the fire. Many of you may be familiar with the poem, Footprints. Do you all know that poem? You've heard that poem before? Uh, In it, a a man noticed that during his most difficult times in life, uh, he would look back and he saw only one set of footprints in the sand. And he asked God, why, God, did you leave me during these difficult times when previously I saw two sets of footprints in the sand? Obviously, you left me and I was alone uh, during my most difficult time, and God answered that when he saw only one set of footprints, it was not because God had left him, but because God had carried him and that 's the kind of God we serve. What a beautiful picture of the promises of God. so when you 're in a crisis, believe that God God can deliver you, that He will deliver you, but still have this even if he does not faith that you 're still going to walk with him trust him and allow him to work out his plan through your suffering and your trials. Uh, This is the kind of God that we serve. He promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. So let's trust his promises and go out and be witnesses to the world who just needs to see this kind of faith in you and I so that they will learn to trust the, the Christ who we trust and love. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing chapter. What an incredible story of the remarkable faith of these three young men. Lord, I pray that what we've learned today will shape our own faith and that we will walk out of here, Lord, with an even if you do not faith, that trusting that you have some greater purpose that we may not understand right now, Lord. Even if you do not deliver us, Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead so that we might have eternal life. And we worship him today in Jesus' name, amen.